Wall Street is full of corruption and it is baked in to every aspect of our society. MMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding at the macro level. In the 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This was written over a hundred years ago. This is The Rogue Scholar with Steve Grumbine. All right, everybody, it is Steve, the Rogue Scholar with Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action. Today we're going to take on a tough one, but before we get there, let's have a moment to both, all of us, exhale and sort of take a deep cleansing breath. I mean, let's just be fair. Fighting for truth is exhausting, even when you have truth on your side. Because what happens when you're trying to convince people of the truth, when you're going through these things of your heartfelt beliefs, dealing with people sweeping your legs, cutting you down, punching you in the stomach, yelling at you, hating you, trolling you, talking shit about you behind your back, whatever. Never feeling like you're making progress, constantly up against a wall. It can be exhausting. It really can be. And so let's all just take a deep cleansing breath and exhale. Because trust me, I mean, there are days when getting up off the mat is a little bit harder than other times. Today is one of them times, ironically. I mean, I'm excited. I've got a lot of things going on in my head. Um, but just, I, I think there's like a residual beatdown effect of all the naysayers and all the trash talkers and all the little groups that cordon off to the side here and there and just denigrating you're like holding your kids in your arms looking down at them and wondering which person are they talking about they don't like my online presence but anyway point is this is a tough racket you got war in ukraine and russia you got people that don't know which end is up people fighting with each other parting ways with each other it's depressing you got social media literally telling us that the international uh, segment of our uh, website is been denied by independent fact checkers that MMT is not real, not joking. Um, Facebook has literally blocked us sharing our international page that talks about MMT around the world as uh, false news, that we have standards and all this stuff. Now, mind you, it's academic. We're not talking about a bunch of conspiracy drivel that's still widely spread out throughout social media. We're talking about our international page on our website. Crazy, right? All right. So what we're going to do today, my friends, is we're going to talk about putting the T in MMT. And as you saw from the uh, promotional artwork, you know, our very first episode of Macro and Cheese, we knew how important the subject was. You know, that word theory, depending upon where you sit in the educational strata, stratum, whatever, um, it means different things, right? I think most people, sadly, think that uh, my wife cheated on me and guy sitting there at a bar stool tipping back and says, you know, I got a theory about why you're, you're, the reason your wife left you. You got a theory. It's not what we're talking about, okay? I know it's fun to think that that's probably what you think we're talking about, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like a real honest-to-God scientific theory, not a law. Uh, as Bill Mitchell says, the only law is that we die, right? And so... uh when you think about it in those frameworks, you have to understand that the logical framework for modern monetary theory is both theoretical um, in the scientific sense, and it's also, um, you know, kind of an operations manual. Um, and we, you'll oftentimes hear MMT referred to as a lens to view the world, to understand the world, to put it together, to make sense of what is happening around you. You also hear people talk about MMT-informed 
policy. It's not something like if we implement MMT, we'll have MMT policy. That's MMT informed policy. When you understand the system and you leverage that knowledge to create policy, then you have MMT informed policy. And so these terms get thrown around and there was a video a while back that said there's nothing really new about MMT and that it's not much theoretical and so forth. And that's simply not true. And so what I want to do is I'm going to share, uh, share some, uh, I'll share some important information, mainly from our uh, podcast, Macro and Cheese. We're going to start there with our uh, Bill Mitchell episode. And this right here is putting the T in MMT with Professor Bill Mitchell. Now, I'm going to play a little bit of this momentary just so you all can hear the beginning of this. Well, in social sciences, there's, there's only one law, and that is that we die. They'll forego what you'd expect to, to be a revision of their ideas. They'll forego those doubts because the maintaining membership and status within the group becomes more important. Someone said that paradigms don't really shift until the dominant ambassadors of that paradigm die. All right. So with that, I'm going to open up the transcripts and hopefully you guys got a little bit of a taste of that heavy metal music that makes some people's ears bleed, which is, I just can't even tell you how hilarious that is when I hear people whine about the, the music being too hard for them. It's pretty tragic, actually. But let's go ahead and take a step through the transcripts of the uh, Bill Mitchell episode putting the T in MMT. And what he starts out with, I say, all right, this is Steve Grumbine, you know, my normal thing. I said, uh, Steve with Real Progressive, I have Bill Mitchell joining me from Australia. Something very important to know about this. Bill is one of the original founding developers of modern monetary theory. And it's one of the most difficult things for lay people who are trying to advance knowledge of MMT, you know, both amongst each other and through the political parties, wherever you go, we're talking knowledge. We're always approached with the question of why the T? What's the deal? What's the deal with the theory thing, right? And so Bill Mitchell gets into it here shortly. And by the way, this is transcripts here. So we have transcripts for every one of our podcasts. We're not just giving you, uh, you know, an audio thing and here everybody's a YouTuber, everybody's a podcaster. Now we go the extra step and we don't just give you a computer blurted out. We actually have two human edits that go into these things. Plug for the team. Want to thank everybody that does the hard work on these. But here it goes. Well, when you think about it, you start off a person who's thinking about trying to understand something, a reality, if you like. We start off with a series of conjectures about reality. And they're just guesses or hypotheses, you know, they're just unsubstantiated or at that stage. And so we might say, well, you know, A causes B and B being reality and A being another thing in the reality that we're trying to comprehend or understand. And that's not yet a theory in my view. That's just what we call a conjecture, a guess. And to advance that a bit further, we have to then get to what I call congruency. Now, that sounds like a pretty awful term, but all it means is the idea that you have about A and B has to stack up when you start going out and actually checking out what A and B is. And you know, in the jargon, that means to do imperial research. We collect data. We check out whether we said about A and B, the conjecture stacks up. Whether you push A and B moves in the way you sort of broadly think it does actually happens. And if it does happen, then you've got a problem because it means that your conjecture is not congruent. There's, got, there's a lot of void getting into the world of religion here because we're not searching for truth when we're doing this type of theorizing. Because how will we know the truth if we actually stumbled on it? There's no way of really knowing whether we've actually found the truth. So when we're talking about congruency, we're actually talking about 
what econometricians say is a tentatively adequate representation of the data, a tentatively adequate representation. And what that means in English is for the time being, the explanation you're offering provides an adequate depiction of the movements in the data, you know, A and B. You don't know whether it's the actual truth, but for the time being, it's the best explanation that you have available for the relationship between A and B in the real world. And for the time being, you sail with that. You move along that with that's your theory, that it's congruent predictions and never going to be 100% accurate because what we call randomness in the world. But for the time being, basically are getting things correct. When you say this will happen, it broadly happens. When you say that won't happen, broadly doesn't happen. And that's what I think is a theory. And I said, so tell me what the theory is between a theory and a hypothesis. As you know, I think what happens now is you give a very, very in-depth explanation of what theory means in the real world. And probably a lot of people are like, wow, what does the word congruent mean? Let me Google that here. Let me Google that for you. Um, anyway, barroom chatter and so forth. That's, that's the kind of stuff that we end up hearing about when we talk about a theory. And so ultimately, MMT has a theoretical framework. We know a bunch of things. We've tested a bunch of things. We smash them up. We use legal uh, understandings, legal arrangements, legal agreements. We use the understanding of the way uh, stock flow consistent modeling works. We look at various aspects and we see, do they consistently predict? And you can see neoclassical economics has never gotten anything correct at all, like at all. And so the theory of modern monetary theory is that when you do certain things, certain things happen. But there's also about observable facts, right? So you're making extrapolations of observable facts that can be repeated over time. And one of the things that is known is more like an operations manual, manual than a theoretical framework is the way that money gets spent into the economy, the way that money is created, the way that money is generated. And the fact that we don't tax to spend, that we spend to tax. Okay, these are things that came out of deep research. Bank of England wrote a detailed paper explaining how money was created, and it talks specifically, specifically about the way modern monetary theory presents it. So when you're talking to people, one of the challenging things about this whole concept of what a theory is and what the practical application is. And then what's the difference between the political angle, right? So if you're taking three different angles of this, one is just we're in a vacuum. We have a world that we know is the way the world is, and we insert certain things into this model and we see if they work. And they work because we know the way the plumbing of MMT is. We understand just the basic plumbing. What we don't understand necessarily until we put it into work is what a given policy or given strategy might put out there. Okay. So we can come up with some conjectures, guesses, hypotheses, whatever, um, that directly address those sorts of things. And we can go ahead and use the lens of the MMT theoretical framework to analyze the outcomes. Understanding the role of the currency issuer is not theoretical. Understanding the role of the currency user is not theoretical. Understanding that the value derived from the U.S. dollar being tied to the obligation payable only in its currency of the tax is not theoretical. The impacts of that are theoretical. You could start watching and see how various things happen. If I raise taxes 10%, what does that do theoretically to the rest of it? I don't know, because there's a lot of other factors at play, okay? But we do know the theory of MMT is a series of coherent, congruent, observable facts 
that generate predictable outcomes. That's, that's what we do now. Okay. So when you start talking about MMT informed policy, what you're now talking about is you're crafting policy with an understanding of all the tools, all the conjectures, all the understandings, the observed understandings that MMT brings to the table. And that would go into things like currency issuer, currency user. If a currency issuer is the one that spends the money into existence, it creates the money, well, it can clearly never run out of the money. But that doesn't say whether or not it'll be worth anything. So how do you know that having all that money will buy you anything, can do anything for you? You have to have some sort of a obligation tied back to that currency. It doesn't have to be a tax. It could be a bond. It could be any number of things. But ultimately, we know that that currency issuer can never run out of the tokens it's creating because it creates them out of thin air. This much we do know. So if you're telling me that I can do certain things at the currency issuer level, as long as there are goods and services for sale at the currency issuer level that the currency issuer would like to spend on, that is a true statement. People will accept U.S. dollars. Why? Because they have to pay their taxes in U.S. dollars. If you don't want U.S. dollars, what are you going to pay your taxes in? Because you will get taxed and you will have to pay. So what will you get for that? What will you do with that? You have to have U.S. dollars. So that's why it maintains its value, not because of some other commodity, because observably, scientifically, it is not tied to any other commodity. See, this is the thing. It's not some idea in your head. It's observably not tied to any commodity in the world. It's not tied to anything else other than the tax liability. Okay. These are the scientific aspects of MMT that show you empirically how that works. But then when you look at states and you look at people and you look at businesses and you say, hey, by law, you are unable, Article 1, Section 10, says that you're not able to create the currency. States cannot create the currency. If they cannot create the currency, they are dependent on getting currency from somewhere. This is empirical. This is not theoretical. This is empirical. They cannot get it from somewhere else. They, the only way they can get it is either A, they borrow it, or B, people take out loans, private loans, or C, the currency issuing government pays them, provides grant money for them, whatever, or through sales and so forth from their, from their uh, state to capture tax revenues, right? That's how they get their money. But they don't get their money by creating and spending money into existence. They don't have the capacity to do the bold moves that a currency issuer can do. That's not theoretical, that's science, that's fact, that's observable truth, that's legal truth, okay? Now, Article 1, Section 10 says they can't do that. Article 1, Section 8 gives that power explicitly to Congress, okay? So you got two legal statutes in the United States. Now, this is different in other places around the world, but not much. It's really the same thing, okay? So this is not a U.S. phenomenon. This is anywhere around the world, as we talked about the other, I think it was Friday, we did the concept of MMT is not a U.S. thingy, right? So from a theoretical standpoint, some things that we can conjecture, a state will go bankrupt if it tries to do bold policy moves because a state doesn't have the flex to be able to support all the other responsibilities that are burdening the state today without having the ability to create currency to offset that. So hypothetically, here's your theoretical. We have a pandemic and states are left to handle that on their own. We have a hurricane come through and states are expected to handle that on their own. Can't do it. 
There's no way they could absorb the monetary cost because they are dependent on currency being given to them, spent to them through the currency issuing authority. If they did take out a loan, they'd have to go to the IMF or something like that and say, oh my God, we've been decimated by a hurricane. Can you please help us rebuild our crumbling infrastructure? And the IMF and the third world countries would raise their hand and say, you better believe it. Let us introduce to you some structural adjustments to make you a business-friendly place when we rebuild you. That's not the way it is in nations like the United States who have full ability to capacity, if you will, to do these great things. This is not theoretical. This is factual. This is absolutely in the sense of theoretical by the science definition, it is theoretical because you can see it's a series of true proven things that come together to make up the theory. Yes, the federal government can in fact pay for any kind of disaster, any kind of bold policy proposal that it wants to do. Now, the one thing that we don't typically take into account because this changes, right? What happens when you have people in power that do not function in this way, that do not allow the truth to be told, that operate with a, an absolutely incorrect framework, that have an incorrect lens, or maybe they don't have an incorrect lens. Maybe they purposely have an austerity-driven lens that has one purpose and one purpose only. Maybe it is to fatten the wealthy. Now, all of a sudden, the truth of MMT is still true. There's nothing untrue about it. There's nothing not theoretical in the framework about it. It still is a lens that describes what happens, but it will also describe what the idiots up top do when they try to pay for things with taxes. They start talking about, well, that's a lot of money or that's not affordable. We know that they're already lying right in that breath. They're, well, let me be more generous. We already know that they're not accurate. We already know that they're not accurate. Okay. So this is really important to understand because when you look at the cause and effect, you look at your elected representatives, you look at people like AOC, who's supposed to be a champion of ours, still breaking out the taxpayer payer myth. Why is she doing that? It's not because MMT isn't true. It's because she's dealing in a different realm where they have to communicate differently. I'm not making excuses for her. I'm, I'm angry that she does this. I'm suggesting that this is why they do it. Most Americans don't have a clue. Most people around the world don't have a clue that this is true, regardless of whether they use it incorrectly or not. Think about this. A car will run on gasoline when you pour gasoline in it. But hypothetically, let's say you don't put enough gasoline in it. How far is that car going to go? I don't know. I have no idea how far it's going to go. Well, you kind of do because you know that at least at a high level that this car gets 30 miles to the gallon based on X, Y, Z. And you can start putting those conjectures together. Now, will it end up being 32 miles you go? Or will it end up being 24 miles you go? Maybe. I don't know. It depends on a whole bunch of other factors that play into it. Okay. So the power dynamic in understanding MMT is very serious. You look at black and brown people from the history of this country, in the United States in particular, who have never had agency, who have never had power, who have never been able to exact their will. And you talk about a sovereign currency issuing nation being able to do whatever it needs to do to support them. Well, that would naturally mean it would have the money to provide reparations. It would immediately mean that, wouldn't it? And yet we don't have reparations for people who are promised 40 acres and a mule and 200 years plus of lies, cheating and stealing and being sold off and put in jail for any number of things, right? So if you look at it, it's kind of like hard to say, gosh, MMT is true because look, if that's true, then why? It's kind of like asking God, if you're real, why do people die? Why do people have cancer? Why do good people get shot? You know, 
It's like, why ask why? Drink Bud dry. I mean, you ask a Christian, they're going to tell you, well, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. There's a purpose to his, to his movements. Don't question the Lord, right? Well, that's fine. Okay. There's your belief. That's not conjectures tied together to make theory, right? That's faith. We're talking about something far more concrete in the real world here and now that you can see, that you can test, that you can prove, right? The Lord moving in mysterious ways is not a theoretical framework for being able to design an economy, okay? So let me just be real, and that's no shot at faith. I'm, I'm all about faith. I'm good with faith, but let's put faith where it belongs. Faith is faith. We're talking about designing models, systems, theories that are conjectures of series of observable facts that come together to create this body of knowledge. This is very, very important. So I say this to you because people are running from the word theory. They're scared to say it's theory. People sit there and go, well, it's just a theory. No, you can't be the idiot whisperer all the time. I agree. Because we're not talking about the theory of why your son missed that pitch the other night in baseball. We're not talking about why you theoretically didn't make it to varsity. We're not talking about the theory of why you, uh, you, know, you cheated on your spouse. We're not talking about those theories. We're not coming up with a series of guesses, right? That's conjectures. Now, you can have a series of honest conjectures that you see observable things and tie A and B together, as Bill Mitchell said, and you could say, hey, listen, the cell phone towers show you were texting your boyfriend. They show that you were in his backyard. There is aerial footage from a drone that happened to just be passing by when you were having sex with the dude or whatever. So now I know you were cheating on me. And then the private investigator took these pictures and did this video. We've got proof. That's not a theory. That is just a law at that point, right? I mean, you've gone beyond theory and moved into law, but we don't have a lot of laws because theories evolve with new information. As new information is presented, they grow, they expand, they change. Okay. I want you to understand that MMT will evolve as things change, but the truths, the underlying truths are not going to evolve. They've already been established, right? A fiat currency works this way. Something very, very fundamental changed in 1972. This is a fact. A fact is, is that we left the worldwide dollar standard known as the Bretton Woods Accord, which by our standard was the gold standard. The U.S. dollar was pegged to gold. The world was pegged to the dollar, basically. That's how the Bretton Woods Accord worked. And France, being the folks that they are with their freedom fries or whatever, France decided they were going to start calling in their gold. They wanted gold for their dollar holdings. And Nixon was like, no, you're not going to do this to us. To Tricky Dick's you know, credit, he saw what happened the last time somebody tried to do a run on gold and just said, no, we're leaving the gold. We're leaving the Bretton Woods Accord. We're pulling out of this. We're unpegging our currency to gold, and we're allowing it to float freely on the market. A sovereign free-floating fiat currency is the highest order of freedom, of monetary sovereignty, if you will. I know that people debate that term, but the fact is, is that that's a term that we've all used for a long time, and for the sake of argument, I'm going to continue using it. But within that space, right, within that monetary sovereignty space, a free-floating fiat currency allows us the space to do whatever we want. Now, we had it before, but there were consequences. There's always consequences. If you do this, X, Y will happen. You do this, Y, Z will happen, right? When we remove the peg and we allowed the currency to float on the open exchanges, right, it took away the ability for someone to force redeem dollars for gold. And it allowed the actual nation to spend to capacity. And by capacity, what I mean by capacity? I mean the productive capacity of the nation. Anything that is for sale in U.S. dollars can be purchased by the U.S. government, and the government can never run out of money, regardless of tax receipts. You understand that? 
taxes literally come after the spending because where did the dollar come from? The dollar comes from congressional spending. Remember, Article 1, Section 8 of your U.S. Constitution. This is neither, you know, some sort of guesswork. This is fact. This is the law. This is the way it is. So when you understand that, you start extrapolating, start coming up with other conjectures, right? People talk about the petrodollar. This is one of those political things where what they've done is they kind of chose, hey, to make payments for uh, petrol, you'll need to use U.S. dollars. Now, what does that do? It affords a special access to various things for sure. It makes the dollar ubiquitous. Does it help us with uh, imports and stuff like that? Absolutely. Does it provide us with power as we've seen when we can just turn off the SWIFT system and things like that? Absolutely. But there are many, many other currencies in the basket of reserve currencies beyond that. And if they stopped selling petrol and U.S. dollars and they started using yuan, what would that mean? What well, would mean that when you're doing transactions with China or you're doing transactions with Japan, you may want to keep more of your dollar holdings in their currency to facilitate trade. This is not conjectures off on their own. This is a series of related conjectures that make up part of the theory. Okay. We know for a fact that the United States government is not pegged to the value of petrol. It doesn't matter. It's, it's a numeraire. In other words, it's like, think of like social security. When you get that statement every year, it says how much you paid in. That doesn't really mean anything to you. It's a numeraire of sorts. It's showing you how much you've quote unquote paid in the system, but it doesn't tell you how the system operates on the back end. System on the back end doesn't care about how much money you actually put into it because ultimately the Social Security Trust Fund is merely the authorization to make payments. Those dollars that were spent that you were taken from your paycheck to go to Social Security. They were never kept in a little piggy bank somewhere waiting for you for a rainy day. They're deleted just the same as every other dollar when it's received as a tax. This is a understanding of the way the banking system works. And watch this. I'm not going to get too, too in the weeds with this, but accounting is, is forensic. Accounting is science. It's very boring, very dry. You have debits and credits. You have assets and liabilities. Okay. If I'm a currency issuing government and I spend money into existence, that money goes into somebody else's asset. But it's really the government's liability. So what does the government put in place of that dollar it's spent into the economy? Puts a reserve over here. You got reserve on one side of the balance sheet. You got dollars on the other. Reserves never leave the banking system. They're there merely to facilitate uh, transactions through the banking system. This, again, is not theoretical in the sense of my wife cheated on me and wonder what happened. This is theoretical in the scientific sense. It's forensic. You can see this. Okay. People come up with all these cockamamie things when reality is so much more boring, but it's real. Okay. So when you have reserve accounting, you have this liability over here. And so you have this thing called interest on reserves. This is how the Federal Reserve funds its operations and stuff. They charge interest on reserves. Why do they charge interest on reserves? Well, a number of reasons. If you have too much reserves built up into the banking system, they eventually are worthless, okay? So the idea is to charge interest on them to keep them moving. So what does the government do? When the government receives a dollar in tax, it eliminates a dollar in reserves and they wash out and they zero out and it vanishes, kaput, it's done, it's gone. Remember, reserves can't be borrowed, they can't be lent, they can't be spent. They simply act as a ledger entry between banks to facilitate trade. So I want you to think about what I'm saying here. These are theoretical in the scientific sense. This is accounting in the scientific sense. This is watching flows in the scientific sense. Now, what we call stock flow consistent modeling and sectoral balances, okay? 
people have different ways of saying this, but the identity, the identity of stock flow consistent modeling is science. Okay. And what I want you to understand is that one person's spending is always someone else's income. It's always that it's double entry accounting. And when the government, for example, here, let's say in the United States, we have an economy and the economy is either in surplus or it's in deficit. Most times, if you have unemployment, the deficit is too damn low. We need to raise the debt. We need more deficit spending because why? Where did that money go? Well, the money itself that was already in the economy could have done a number of things. Number one, we could have purchased imports, which means our dollars leave the economy. They may stay stuck at the Fed in some foreign entity's bank account used to facilitate trade back and forth in the United States. They could be a demand leakage, which is our savings pulled out of the working economy and kept in the same. They could be a bond. They could be anything pulled out of the working economy and pulled off. They could be offshored in some other, you know, tax haven, whatever. But ultimately that money is gone. It's out of, it's out of play for now. Okay. But you also have something else too, and that is private debt. So, you know, you look at private debt, you look at rest of world, the, the, uh, imports, you look at the balance of payments between countries and the way that those transactions occur inside of the banking system. And then you look at the level of private debt that individuals have. Now you and I, we have a certain credit limit. We can't spend past that. Now we might find somebody that's a payday lender that puts some sort of thing up there, Joey the Joey the Dove or Joey Fingers and Vinny the Dove come after you if you don't pay the VIG or whatever. 46% on a loan. But in reality, you have sovereign spending. The federal government spends some money into the economy. You have import or excuse me, export money coming into the economy. Or you have private debt coming into the economy, three spigots into the economy. And then you got a multitude of things that are draining it out of the economy. Like I said, those leakages. That could be tax. Tax pulls money out of the economy and deletes it purges that reserve. Remember, I told you when money is spent into the economy, a corresponding reserve is added to the other side of the ledger. Okay. So spending uh, money is putting it in, taxing it is taking it out, removing it from the economy, deleting it, purging it forever. The desire to save is a demand leakage that pulls it out of the economy. Offshoring pulls it out of the economy. Purchasing imports pulls it out of the economy. So if you don't fill the bathtub back up, I know that some people have a problem with this, but it's an easy picture to understand, even if it's slightly incorrect. Okay. It, the bathtub starts shrinking because people are tight. They don't have enough credit. They're out of credit. They can't buy something on a credit card anymore. So that last line of defense to pay the electric bill is now gone. Their job, maybe they don't have enough money coming in. It's gone. If the federal government doesn't start spending money, the economy starts drying up. And that's when you enter into recessionary periods. Okay. There are times where maybe a surplus is good, but what is a surplus as I defined with when the government spends money into the economy and it puts a reserve there? A surplus means you've taken more out of the economy than you put into it. But you know the government doesn't save money. There's no reason for the government to save money. This is not conjecture. This is not some sort of guesswork. This is an honest-to-God uh, fact, right? This is the fact. This is how it works. I'm trying to close my uh, outlook so it doesn't keep making these stupid Windows sounds. But in any event, the point I'm making here is, is that there are theoretical things, but those theoretical things are really more, in our world, facts. That's what it is. They're facts. They're observable facts. So that brings me to the final point of this, and that is that people, people, because they don't like the word theory, they don't understand the word theory. They get all in a bunch. They get in a bunch. They want to change that word theory. They think they can come up with 
MMT, modern monetary truth, man. Yeah. You know, or MMP, modern monetary policy. Yeah. They come up with some name that makes them feel better. Well, that's fine. Except we're not going to change the name of these things. Why is that? Let's talk about that. One of these days, go out and do a Google search. Go out there and do an academic search. Try finding modern money policy out there. Try finding modern money truth or something like that. The word is modern monetary theory and modern money theory, okay? MMT. And so when you go into Levy and you go into all these think tanks and you go looking for white papers and you go out there searching for articles that have SEO built into the back end of them. Oh yeah, that thing called SEO, huh? Search engine optimization that has these keyword searches. And those things have those keywords, modern money theory, modern monetary theory, okay? What you come up with is gonna be very different. And there has been 30 plus years, 30 plus years of scientific, academic, and activist-based work tied to these names, these specific names, okay? You're not going to find, people are not going to, re, you know, sadly, a lot of newcomers to this space, a lot of new activists don't read New Economic Perspectives. New Economic Perspectives is what most of us folks read back in the day when we were learning MMT. In fact, Randy Ray's book, Modern Money Primer, is actually in the MMT uh, section, the primer section of New Economic Perspective. It's a series, I think it's 53 blog posts that were transformed into a book. But most people don't even know what New Economic Perspectives is. If they didn't see it in the Washington Post, New York Times, Stephanie Kelton, whatever, some substack, that doesn't exist, right? Wrong. Many of us who became rabid MMTers who really learned this stuff inside and out and took the time to develop an understanding, just lay people, regular Jane and Joe six pack, learning this stuff. We learned it using this. We learned it reading Warren Mosler's book, Soft Currency Economics. We learned it reading Warren Mosler's book, Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds. We learned it reading Reclaiming the State by Bill Mitchell. We learned it by reading a bunch of white papers. And now modern here recently, People are learning it from reading Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth. But we had rabid, on-fire, activated activists who understood inside and out the necessity, the necessity of getting MMT out there because they understood that people were dying. This is not conjecture. In fact, it is a series of proven conjectures that make a theory when you look at austerity as murder, a study in London showed that austerity is social murder. Now, that's not just a whim. That's a fact. They have proven repeatedly that people die under austerity. So if this is a true fact, scientific fact, and then you add in the science behind modern monetary theory through the theoretical framework, you can take that lens, that understanding, and you can use it to craft policy that would impact austerity as murder and eliminate that. See, this is where putting theory into practice becomes important. I see somebody asking me what SEO, search engine optimization, basic web-based stuff for every website that has all these little tags in the background for when someone searches for your article, it has keywords that it pulls from Google so that you can see it rank in the search engine. When you're trying to get your articles out there, that's how they do it. And so all these white papers that people probably would never read on their own, they're out there. The tweets that people have been doing for years and years and years with these fantastic long tweets, incredibly detailed tweets with lots of references. All of that is based on hashtags. Hashtags like learn MMT. Oh, I don't like that hashtag. 
got to change it. Can't stand it. Guess what? It's a category error because the fact is that that right there, if you do a search on learn MMT or a search on each one, teach one, you're going to find a treasure trove from the last decade, not the last 15 minutes, last decade or more of information and links and really important uh, factoids and memes and videos and articles and white papers and tweets, everything with those hashtags. So understanding how to find information is a really key thing here with the naming convention as well. Why that's even remotely uh, difficult to understand? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't even have a good theory for that. Ego? I don't know. Thinking you're higher up than one ought when reality is, is that people that were standing on the shoulders of giants that created this stuff, all their work is categorized under this. Yeah, I'm not going to change it. I'm not cool enough to change it. I'm just not cool enough to do it. That's not theory. That's fact, right? That's, that's a series of conjectures that we can observably prove. I'm not cool enough, okay? That's a fact, Jack. So I want you to take the time. Go listen, please. And I've had all these links inside of the... Uh, the uh, write-up for this particular video. All of this is inside with links to the Macro and Cheese first episode ever with Bill Mitchell on putting the T in MMT. Listen to it. I, I, I'm, I'm always puzzled, and this is theoretical too in the true scientific sense, why when people say, how come we're not reaching people outside the echo chamber? How come we're not expanding this? And then I look at their social media footprint and I realize they're not sharing any of these things. I mean, I just sat there and showed you. Example, our podcasts have the actual transcripts to everything there. So if you didn't listen to it, you can read it. You see what I mean? But I look on their social media walls and I realize they're not sharing it. They want to change the name, but they're not sharing the work. You tell me, what do you think needs to change here? Do you think the name MMT needs to change or do you think their sharing habits need to change? I'm going to go with sharing habits, right? And chances are they didn't listen to the Putting the T in MMT podcast. So that means they don't even understand the framework behind it. And I've done probably 100 of these videos and chances are they've never bothered to listen to one of them. So do you think that needs to change or do you think the name MMT needs to change? Hmm. I think I know where I stand on that one. <laughs> so with that, I think it's important for us to understand that the theoretical framework is just a series of conjectures, of observations, et cetera, put together into a coherent school of thought that can be expanded upon as new information comes in that would impact it. But the stuff that is there has been proven through series of a and B observations and seeing what comes out. So I'm asking you all each, take your time helping people learn the stuff. Know where to find resources. Use your hashtags. Understand what a theory is. Do you realize when someone asks you, oh, it's just a theory, that is an opportunity for you if you've done your homework. Your homework. That's not there. That's your homework. If you've done your homework and listened to that pod or read the books, read the papers, you then can in turn say, let me tell you what a theory is. You're thinking about it in the colloquial way. You're thinking about it like at the fire pit while we're all smoking a J or at a bar stool pounding a frigging shot of tequila. You're not thinking about it from the scientific viewpoint. And when you start thinking about reserve accounting and you start thinking about the role of taxes and stuff like that, this is not, I'm just shooting from the hip. This is a series of observable conjectures that are tied together to make up a coherent, congruent lens to understand the plumbing and to understand what happens when you put different inputs into the system and to see how it works. 
like understanding why a state-based Medicare for all would be a very, very poor idea, as opposed to just trying to be a meanie. You're a big old meanie. You're a big meanie. No, I've just given you a theoretical framework that shows that's a bad move. Your feelings about that truth, notwithstanding, this is the way a currency issuer operates, and this is the way a currency user operates. And this is the power dynamic that the United States federal government has versus your little teeny neck of the woods. Okay. The bargaining power of the currency issuing national government, wherever you are, versus your province, your little state, your municipality, your, you know, township, whatever, currency users. You are the one waiting to receive currency. You can't create currency. Only the federal government can. And so it's very important to understand the role of the currency issuer and currency user. And if that gets you a case of the feels, if you get up in your feels and that causes you to feel some type of way, that's less about the theory and that's more about some, maybe you haven't gotten enough protein in your body. Maybe you're not exercising enough. You know, maybe you're not, I don't know, getting enough sleep at night and your feels, you're caught up in your feels. Don't confuse your feels with the reels of observable science. It's very important because that's how friendships end. Because the truth teller is going to stand on the theory and the feels-based person is going to get upset for them telling the truth. And I think that if you read the stuff that I put into the link here, into the narrative of this particular video, it'll start to make sense to you. And you'll be less likely to react emotionally to somebody telling you when something's not really a good idea. It's not intended to be hurtful. It's intended to be honest because we don't have a lot of time on this planet. If we don't get our shit together from climate change to healthcare, you name it. So with that, folks, I hope that this was some value to you. Can't guarantee it. Maybe I didn't do a great job. Maybe theoretically I could have done better. <laughs> theoretically, I could have done better, right? So this is where your job kicks in. This is where you need to be the student. You need to be the researcher. Do your own research. Do your own research, right? But don't go after reading things from people that are naysaying about a subject that they know nothing of. And I've never seen an honest critique of modern monetary theory that was worth the time it took to write it. Every critique of MMT, save for some like infinitesimal, like weird accidental moment, just trash to be perfectly honest with you. Anyway, with that, I am Steve Grumbine, and I am with the Rogue Scholar. And have a good day, everybody. Now. The Rogue Scholar is a production of Real Progressives. If you would like to support our work, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives.